0: we remember you through that song. Lord. that you are in control we place our trust in you as proverbs 3 tells us the trust in you with all of our heart lean not on our own understanding acknowledging you that you would direct our paths lord and as we open your holy scriptures now we ask lord that you will illuminate our hearts Set us apart for you, Lord, as you call us to be holy, for you are holy. Lord, that you will grow our faith, and that we would hear from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, say hi to somebody before you have a seat. Meet somebody you don't know.
1: you can go ahead and take your seats you can shuffle around and change your seat if you don't like where you're sitting and if you are in junior high they are having junior high service next door in our other building so if you haven't left which everyone has but if you are in junior high and you haven't left the building you can do so now my name is Amy if we haven't met I am part of the staff here at Sierra Bible Church and I am here to welcome you and say good morning and hello I also want to make sure if you are new here or visiting, uh, there are there's information in the seats in front of you about the church. We have a connect table in the foyer that has information about all the happenings that are going on in this uh, in the week and in the month. Uh, we also have a gift for you if you are new and you want to pick that up on your way out. Uh, it's a scripture journal for the Book of Mark. So if you haven't noticed, we are in the Book of Mark, and these scripture journals have all these extra spaces for uh, those of you that like to take notes, as well as a coupon for a free drink at Drink Coffee Do Stuff, which is a local coffee shop here. And the owners happen to attend church here as well. And so if you are new, please get one of those on your way out, or you can get one now. That's fine too. Uh, I usually am up here also giving you lots of information about what's happening. I am pleased to tell you that I don't have too much to say this morning And so, really, I just want to emphasize one thing, and that is our ministry fair that is happening in three weeks. Uh, If you don't know what a ministry fair is, it is one of those things where you go outside and there's all these tables with, like, poster boards and other things that tell you all about our ministries here. And so, if you're familiar with them already, great. If you're not, it's an opportunity to uh, get to know about all of the ministries here at the church It's also an opportunity to sign up and volunteer and get your feet wet if you are not volunteering. Uh, there There are a lot of ministries here, and the leaders and those that volunteer with them honestly have been doing it for ages. And I'm not saying they're old. I'm saying they're super loyal and committed individuals, and we love them. But it's always good to have fresh meat, all right? It's always good to have new faces and people plugging in, also because all of you have giftings. And I don't know what they are, but I know you all have them. And I'm hoping that you use them. And if you don't, it's an opportunity to use those gifts or use them more if you're already doing so. So that's in three weeks, June 5th, in between first and second service. All right. And so with that, we have our, one of our elders, Brad Beers, who will be going through Mark with us this morning.
2: uh, I think we have the quote of the morning, it's always good to have fresh meat. (laughs) That's our new slogan. We'll be removing follow Jesus and make disciples (laughs) and making our carnivorous stand for Christ. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I'm so pumped to be here. Part, Part of it is because this is my favorite thing in the world to do. Part of it is because it is like gorgeous outside in case you haven't seen it. Not that we don't love the snow. Like Buddy the Elf, we love the snow too. And um, also Brad like sang three battle songs in a row. So I'm like, (laughs) Um, we're going to need a Bible. So if you didn't bring one and you want one, uh, wave at these attractive men that are walking up and down the aisles and they will put a Bible in your hand. If you don't own a Bible and you like that one, keep it. We want you to use the Bible. That is... uh, that is one of the crucial tools for following Jesus. Um, I, <clears throat> I don't have an intro for you this morning. I don't. Um, when you go to, like, learn how to speak class, they tell you, make sure you have a captivating intro. Don't have it. Um, we're gonna, part of it is because we're covering a lot of text this morning, and I want to jump in as soon as possible. Um, but the other part is that the truth is all I really want this morning is for you to be amazed by Jesus. That's it. That's it. I want you to be amazed by Jesus. Um, I want you to know that he selects people differently than you might think. It's amazing. I want you to know that he teaches religion differently than you might think. Also amazing. He sees the rules probably differently than you do. And because of this difference, you should follow him. That's all I want. Um, So that's my intro. That being said, I'm going to pray that that would occur. Pray with me. Jesus, you are king. That world out there, they they need a king. And I submit to the fact that your kingship looks different than most of the time I want it to. Um, but be king of this time. Speak to these people. Use me in whatever you see, in whatever way you see fit. Speak clearly. And prime the hearts to receive what you have to say. Use this time. Amen. Um, Like I said, we're going to cover a huge portion of the text, but I want to drive home the portion of the text that will show up the most. And so we're just going to read two verses. I know I'm doing this a little bit out of order of how we would normally do this, Brad. You're not following traditions. Yeah, the sooner you learn that, the better from me. Um, But go ahead and if you are able to, stand up opening your Bible to Mark 2. And we are going to just read two of the verses that I want you to be prepared to hear this morning. Again, we don't stand because... We, are, we still have our Roman Catholic hangover or whatever the case is. We stand to re- use our bodies to remind our minds what we're about to do is significant. Two verses, Mark 2, starting in 13. And he, Jesus, went out again by the seashore, and all the multitude were coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. You can sit (laughs) on. I get to continue our series in Mark. And so, just in case you haven't been with us, what we've seen so far in Mark is that Jesus' healing ministry is now in full swing. And he's, anywhere he goes, he's attracting a crowd. He can't go anywhere without, without people gathering around them. And it's mostly because that Jesus is a circus and they want to see the circus. They want to see the miracles. They want to hear all of the weird stuff that he has to say. And that's what Mark wants to drive home this morning. Not as much the, the healing stuff, although you're going to get a little taste of that still. But look at what he says in verse 13. The last part of verse 13, he was teaching them. One of the things you might not necessarily know or have had emphasized to you about Jesus, but Jesus was what was known in the Jewish culture as a rabbi. A rabbi had an incredibly crucial role for the Jewish people. The rabbi was the one that taught them, here's how to understand the text of scripture. And Jesus, the more you learn about Jewish culture, the more you see that Jesus loves to do rabbi stuff but he does it differently. I'll tell you one that you might, necess- you, you might kind of uh, pick up on that maybe you've missed before. Do you notice how Jesus almost always answers a question with a question? That's rabbi stuff. It's rabbi stuff. It's not because Jesus liked to be confusing. It was because that's what you would come to expect from a rabbi. And Jesus did occasionally play the game of doing what people would expect as a rabbi but he would find a way to often flip it on its head. Let's see what the rabbi had to say. First thing that we see, verse 14. As he, Jesus the rabbi, passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Now, this is not the first time that we've seen a follow me passage, right? You remember, he walked by some other fishermen and he said, follow me. And what'd they do? They they followed him. They, They dropped literally what they were doing, and they followed after him. Now, you and I might miss the reason why this is so significant. I want to take a few moments and drive home for you why this is a big deal. In the Jewish culture, educating your children was crucial, but they didn't necessarily worry about math or science or social issues. They worried about one thing and one thing only. Anybody know what it is? the Torah, the law, the first five books. Anybody that was a kid that went to school in the Jewish culture, your job as a student in school was to learn the first five books of the Bible so well that you memorized them. Five books of the Bible. Mike Harrison's in the room, so I can't say, none of us could do this. But, I can't even remember five phone numbers. Every Jewish kid was given the job, memorized the first five books of the Bible. Now, as you can imagine, not every single one of them would do it, right? So some of them, they didn't necessarily have what it took to continue in school. And so at that point, if they couldn't do it, they'd go out, they'd learn the family trade, and they'd go live a successful life doing whatever it is that their family would do. But if you were one of the smaller group, one of the best that could do that, then you'd move on to the next level. Guess what you do then? you memorize the rest of the Old Testament. All of it. Why? Why? Because remember, God had told them, keep this law on your minds, meditate on it day and night. In a culture where you can't just walk over to a bookshelf and pull it down, you're going to have to have access to the scripture somehow. So you got to memorize it. Still a useful tool for us today, but crucial for the Jewish culture. Now, as you can imagine, only the best of the best were capable of doing that and got to graduate. Okay? This is not a public school system where just they graduate you anyway. Only the best of the best go to the next level. The next level is you get an apprenticeship to a rabbi. You would go to a local rabbi because it was the rabbi that would take all the raw material of having memorized the entirety of the Old Testament and would now teach you that this is what it actually means and how to live it out. So you'd have these groups of people around these rabbis all the time trying to learn from them, hey, what's going on? But here's the thing. That wasn't even the top layer. The top layer was only those that the rabbi saw from his apprentices that there was something going on in this guy. Something different about this guy, and he actually has what it takes to do what I do. There was no graduation ceremony, no flipping of the tassel, none of that stuff that you would come to understand about schooling. The graduation ceremony was simply this, two words, follow me. Only the best of the best of the best dreamed of hearing the words, follow me. They were the only ones even worthy of consideration for being a rabbi, for being in his presence. And they took that job so seriously that they would literally follow after him. They wanted to get the dust coming up, the dust cloud of their rabbi. There's Jewish funny stories, literally where they kind of joke about themselves, where there were literally people following their rabbi into the bathroom because they didn't want to miss what might happen. Seems weird, but for you and I, you have to put yourself in that spot of thinking of how hard they had worked to hear the words, follow me. And how many of their schoolmates and classmates and friends and the people that you thought would have been most likely to succeed and everyone voted them most likely to succeed, they had all failed and dropped off. So when a rabbi showed up to people who had normal jobs, something's weird, right? Because these people didn't have normal jobs. The people that heard the words, follow me, were not normal people. They weren't fishermen, and they especially weren't tax gatherers. More Jewish information for a second, just in case you're not aware of this. Jewish law was based off of the purity of, of Jewish life. You had to be different than the rest of the Gentile world. So much so that, yeah, we have to make concession for the fact that you probably have to go to the store every once in a while and you're going to have to be around Gentiles. So whenever you're around Gentiles, just make sure that you then follow these rules of cleaning up afterwards to reinstate your official purity. Imagine what you Imagine the type of friendships you would have within your community if you worked for a Gentile government. Every single day, you were ritually impure. Every day. You'd be an outcast. You'd be an outsider. No one would invite you to their parties because you're impure. And it's my job to stay as pure as I possibly can. So tax gatherers were already on the outer circle well, then, if I'm not going to get invited to parties anyway, if I can't make any friends, I might as well make some money, right? It's my job to take your money and give it to the government. You owe the government 13%. Yeah, let's call it 15 Who's keeping the 2%? That goes to my I have no friends fund. And this is what they would do. You can imagine that tax gatherers were not exactly the most popular of people in the Jewish culture. And yet, this tax gatherer, Levi, son of Alphaeus, later changes his name to Matthew, not that uncommon, for somebody whose world has been rocked by Jesus to want to go by a different name. We see it with some of the other apostles as well. Jesus goes to a tax gatherer, the one who everybody would hate, the one who everyone would avoid, and says, follow me. This is the reason why they immediately go, um, okay. I, you, is he looking at me when he says that? Because your whole life you've been told you can't do it. You, you're not qualified. Jesus says, follow me. So he immediately leaves everything, follows after Jesus. And what's the first thing that Jesus does? He's like, hey, um, so you've been making money off of people and I'm hungry, so let's have a party. So they go and they have a party. Here we go. It came about, verse 15, that while he was reclining at a table in his house, Levi's house, Matthew's house, who's at the party? Many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. Stop there. Do you notice who's at the party? Two groups of people. Tell me them. Tax gatherers, right? The only people that actually want to be friends with the tax guy are other tax guys. Part of that is because accountants aren't super fun. But all the other stuff that we said, sorry, just had to, it's fun. But the, the, only, other per, the only other people that could tolerate being around the tax gatherers were the people that were already on the outside. The sinners, right? Well, I don't mind. I mean, I, it's, I might as well make a little bit of money from these guys, so I'll go to the party and, and hang out. And as you would expect people to respond to a rabbi, the general consensus from the outside world is, what in the world is he doing? Look at the text, verse 16. They began saying to his disciples, 'Um, why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and, and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician. It's those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but the sinners. What Jesus shares with them is something that, at least in my life, I have found often to be the case. A lot of the times, the hardest people to evangelize are good people, aren't they? I don't know in in your life, typically, the people that are a social disaster are willing to hear a message of, hey, you're a mess and someone needs to save you, I know a guy who does that type of thing, and he died for your mess, so that you could have his righteousness. People that have nothing but mess, often are like, yeah, that sounds like a sweet deal. But the people who are like, um, well, I've pretty much like, made every right decision in life, that you could make. I mean, I have a good job. I, I don't cheat on my wife. I haven't murdered anyone which is apparently basically the standard i i do the right things i have a high five sticker on the back of my car i mean i'm, I'm solid those people are are kind of hard to to talk to and to share with them the idea you need to be saved no i don't i'm i'm good and we look at who Jesus is hanging out with exactly for this reason. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is willing to talk and be with anyone who, even if society says, no, 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 you wouldn't hang out with them. He's willing to accept anyone that will realize just that one simple thing. I have need of Jesus. That's it. Jesus turns as a result to the outsider and the outcast and the ones who society wouldn't expect and says, come and follow me, learn from me, be like me. Even those who were voted least likely to succeed end up receiving that message. And because he's training outsiders, he's going to end up training them differently because Jesus teaches in a very different way than most rabbis. Start in verse 18 to see what I'm talking about. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Stop for a moment. At this point, in history, from what we can tell, the Pharisees had a religious practice of fasting twice a week. But one of the things that we learn from Jesus' ministry and another message that he gives to people is that the way in which they were fasting was all wrong. You see, if it was one of the fasting days for the Pharisees and the people that followed them, it, you knew that they were fasting, they essentially, I mean, they wouldn't really, but metaphorically speaking, would wear a t-shirt saying, hey, it's one of my fasting days, right? So that if you like, were encountering the hangry version of them, they would be justified, right? Because they're hashtag suffering for Yahweh, right? Like that's, that's what their life was on those days. And, and if that's what you're supposed to be, if you're a holy spiritual person, It didn't make sense to those who were pursuing trying to be a holy spiritual person. Why is it that Jesus, you're not fasting and your guys aren't fasting? What's going on here? Verse 19, Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom don't fast, do they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I don't know if, if you like weddings. Some of you, I'm sure in this room, in a room this size, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I love weddings. I'm not a big fan. You can hate on me for this, and that's fine. I don't even like myself for this reason. But the, the weddings have a tendency in our culture to have like all kinds of like pomp and circumstance associated with them. And then we like have like special dances and special food and I'm supposed to smash the cake and there's some weird garter thing that I'm not even sure where that's coming from and why we think that's cool. But in, in a Jewish culture, weddings, I might, have, I might have been able to sign on. Why? Because basically a Jewish wedding ceremony was, yes, there was a ceremony, but essentially it was just getting together and eating sometimes for up to a week. You would take off work for a wedding. They were getting together and literally just having a long party. It wasn't like the two hours that I have to tolerate when I'm wearing my choke me vest and all that kind of stuff when I have to go to weddings. It was like a just, just show up and hang out with us and eat and celebrate this momentous thing. So it wouldn't make any sense Jesus says if people were at a wedding going we're not going to celebrate? Well, we will celebrate just by not feasting and drinking and every everybody in the Jewish culture would look at that and be like that's ridiculous, right? What's Jesus first miracle? Y'all remember? Wine making, right? Because the party had been going on so long and so hard that all the wine was gone. So Jesus makes wine for the party, and everyone's like, dude, this is like the best stuff. Have you tried this? Right? Jesus was saying, look, it wouldn't make any sense for you to celebrate a wedding and fast. What Jesus is trying to communicate to them is that this was the time in his presence, they were in the presence of the source of all human joy and that was worthy of celebration. But people in his culture didn't have any concept of why they were even fasting. They were just doing it because that's what the religious people would do. So if they're doing it, I feel like I, I should be doing it. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You need to understand The reason behind what's happening, the meaning behind these practices, it wouldn't make any sense for my people in the source of my presence where of me that I love to celebrate. It wouldn't make any sense for us to be fasting right now. Now, that still begs the question of when is the right time to fast? Jesus says there is a time to fast. That's a whole nother message for a whole nother day. The point is, that Jesus was going to be teaching differently because he was teaching a different group of people than most rabbis would have around them. So much so that he gives two more examples to try to help these questioners understand. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old and the worst tear results. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wine skins. Probably a helpful illustration for them. Probably not a super helpful illustration for you now. Let me try to help, if I can, okay? What happens with you Generally speaking, when you have an article of clothing that somehow becomes destroyed, a rip, a tear, a major seam, uh, something bursts, buttons all fall off, whatever the case is, normally in our culture, what we do, because we are like the abundantly wealthy kings of the world history, is we just go, "Ah, that's now a peasant drapery, and we move on, and we go and buy another Thing that just got wrecked, right? In their culture, they didn't have that option to be able to do it. So think, imagine you now are wearing your favorite shirt. It feels wonderful when everybody looks at it. They think that I'm mighty and powerful because it says Lululemon on the bottom, and and it makes me feel like some type of quasi-yoga athlete thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> if it ripped, well, I, I can't just like throw that shirt out. That I have to fix it. Now, here's another thing you might not understand in terms of the clothing that we have. And Joe will check me on this because he makes clothes, which is really cool. But if we just repaired that clothing with new cloth, on old cloth, especially in a culture where you don't have like poly cotton blends with poly, we're talking like this is real biological material, nothing man-made. You take that new stuff and put it on the old stuff and it's going to end up destroying the garment even more because when you go to wash it or clean it, everything shrinks down and it's gonna, that new patch is going to tear away and tear more material than what was already destroyed at the outset. What Jesus is saying is, look, if I try to take this old stuff and just like put, put a new spin on it, it's going to end up doing more damage. The wineskin thing might be a, an illustration you might understand a little bit better. When wine is fermenting at the final stage of the fermentation of wine, it off gases, it makes gas. If you put it in an old wine skin, the container that they would use, and it off-gasses, it expands, it's going to rip that old container. If you put it in a new one that can kind of stretch and move with it, the wine will end up being able to do what it needs to do, and the container will be saved. Again, what Jesus is trying to illustrate is, look, if I take this group of people, that you guys had all completely turned your backs on saying these people, there's no way that they would be likely to succeed. There's no way that they could follow a rabbi and then try to teach them in the way that you would normally teach them and do the things that we would normally do with them. It's going to end up causing more damage in the long term to these people. I'm going to have to do this differently. Now, I don't know if you know this about Mark, but Mark is not necessarily written in chronological order, which is not necessarily a huge problem. But Mark wants us to see this concept in action by giving us two more stories with similar ideas in the rest of the passage we're going to work with today. What Jesus does at this next moment in verse 23 starts to really double down on the difference of his teaching with this different group of people. Verse 23, it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. For those of you that have a flair for the dramatic, that would be the moment that your head should go, dun, 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 dun. Something's gonna happen. Because in the New Testament, they seem to only bring up the word Sabbath unless something big is about to happen. And sure enough. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Okay. Again, got to do our Jewish homework to try to understand this. I'm not having you flip around the text too much, but this is the moment where I want you to see something. Go to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus is one of those books of the Bible that the kids would memorize. It's the second book of the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 31. We're going to start in verse 14 that ends up being the backdrop, the cultural understanding of what's happening when Jesus and his disciples do what they're about to do. Exodus 31, 14. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall be what? What did you say? Put put to death. God, you got to you got to calm down. Put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there's a sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. So the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a what? As a covenant. New American Standard, the version I'm reading, says a perpetual covenant, a covenant that goes on forever and ever and ever. Ever. It's a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, but on the seventh day, he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Here's what you need to understand about the Sabbath. I want you to picture it in your mind. There's nothing except for God. One day he wakes up, metaphorically, calm down. One day he wakes up and is like, Let's do some creating today. Boom, there was nothing. Boom, there's everything. Over six days, God makes everything. And when you read the text, one thing you don't see in the text of God making things is God going, all right, I'm gonna make a tree i'm gonna make a different one what's he do he goes tree boom the most magnificent forest just like comes forth from the earth he goes mountain erupting from the center of the core of the earth, mountain ranges that people give their lives trying to climb, just come forth. God expends no energy whatsoever to make everything you have ever encountered in your entire life comes to day seven and goes, nap time. What? Why? He spoke the world into being. Why would he need to take a nap afterwards? I don't know. But I'll tell you one thing I do know. Part of the creative process was making you and I. And he says, hey, I want you to be like me. I worked for six days, and then I took a day off. Now when we, as human beings... Let's put ourselves into Jewish shoes again. As Jewish human beings, we were told that the main way to reflect our creator is to be like him. The covenant that we hold with him forever is to accept the reality that his creation of us and the way that we were designed is to accept that we get to work for six days And then on the seventh day, we take off our America hat that says, I have to work every single day of every single week of every single month, even if I don't necessarily feel like it because my worth is built in what I can do and how I can work and my final work product. And God says, you're so cute. Because it's ridiculous. It's not the way that we were made. So much so that it ended up being the covenant between the Jewish people and God for them to keep that Sabbath, because that's what our God did. And we're going to do the same things. And it became so important that not only would they then follow the Sabbath regulations of the Old Testament, they made new regulations to make sure that you wouldn't violate the original regulations. Now, back to our story of Jesus and his people. They were walking through a grain field and picking heads of grain. They're walking through a wheat field. And as they're walking through, they're doing what they're allowed to do under Old Testament law. If you're hungry, you can pick wheat from your neighbor's house and it's not a big deal. The problem that they did was not eating the grain. They then picked it and they did this. And then in the hand and picture this however you want, city people, are, it's food, some type of food. And they ate it. And the religious leaders said, no, you can't do that. Why? Because doing this was work. And you violate the Sabbath by threshing wheat on the Sabbath. How does Jesus respond? He got asked a question in 24. And what's he do? Rabbi stuff. He asked them a question. 25. He said to them, um, Hey, you guys that like have read the text a lot. Have you read that story when David, what he did when he was in need, became hungry and his, he and his companions entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he gave it also to those who were with him. He's like, he says to him, hey, you guys know the Old Testament, yeah? Yeah, you, you remember that part where like David went into the temple, okay, now that may not necessarily strike you the way that it strikes them. You have to remember that to the Jew, David is the Jew. The Jew. He's like the Arnold Schwarzenegger of Jews, okay? For David, who's not a priest, goes in. He's like, I'm hungry. Me and my men want some num-nums. He went into the temple. Whoa, what are you doing? You're not allowed to do that. He goes over to food that specifically was instructed by God, hey, That doesn't get touched by any commoner. That's only the bread that gets to get eaten between God and the priests as a specific part of a specific ceremony. And David goes, yeah, I'm going to eat it. And he eats it with his people and has them do the same. Jesus goes, hey, you remember that story? And they're like, "Um, yeah, I mean, we don't like teach that one a lot, Because the Jew shouldn't do non Jewish stuff like the very big Jewish no nos. Then he drives home two points that blow their minds. Verse 27. He was saying to them, The Sabbath wasn't made for man. I'm sorry, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Verse 27. He's telling them, look guys, you you don't even understand the point of the Sabbath. Keeping Sabbath was about recognizing man's relationship to God and accepting the way that God had created man to be. In essence, it was man allowing God to make decisions for what was best for man. Not us in our short-sightedness, making our own rules, leading our own way. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That in and of itself would have been controversial to hear from a rabbi. But then because it's Jesus, he pushes it a whole lot further. Verse 28. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Why? Why? Who made the Sabbath? What? You don't seem confident in that answer. It's the safest church answer to give, right? The answer to almost every question is like, Jesus, God, the Bible. You learned that in Sunday school. They throw candy at you just for saying those three words. Okay? It's the safest word to say. All right. Now saying that, who made the Sabbath? He didn't need it. He made it for man. Jesus says, look, even though you don't even understand the Sabbath, even if you did, you don't realize I made the Sabbath. This was not something that was received well. You might read that and be like, yeah, I don't know. But now knowing some of the stuff you know about Judaism, can you realize how big of a deal this was? For Jesus, as a rabbi, the ultimate knower of everything in the Old Testament to say, yeah, I made the Sabbath. So much so that at the end of 3.6, you see the very last phrase of chapter 3, verse 6. We're going to read it in a moment, but just see ahead the last phrase. Their response is, we've got to figure out how to end this guy. We have to destroy him. That's the response of the religious establishment. What's even more notable, at least in my mind, is look at how his family responds in 3.21. When his own people heard this stuff, they went out, To take custody of him, dude, grab your boy. Why? He has lost his mind. It says it right in the text. Jesus' own family, his own people, thought that this dude was a nutcase because he said things like, Yeah, you know that Sabbath? I made it. So calm down. I get to run it the way that I want. That is not normal. And again, we are faced with this reality that Jesus was either some like super evil con man, he was a straight up crazy man, or there was something unique about that man that has never been and never will be. And he was willing to say straight to their faces things that were gonna get him killed. Now, in case you didn't quite understand or grasp the gravity of it, it happens again. The last section we're going to read for this morning. Verse verse one of chapter three. And he, Jesus, entered again into a synagogue. See, this is what rabbis did on the Sabbath. They went into a synagogue. This is where the people gathered to hear the word of God and to worship. Everyone who was everyone was going to be there. And Jesus uses it for another unexpected message. In that synagogue, there was a man with a withered hand. One of the things you're going to notice as we read this passage, never once does this withered hand man get named. Just imagine it, see it. This hand that, for whatever reason, just wasn't functional. In an agricultural society, this would be a really big deal. And John did a really good job last week of pushing home this point in the Jewish culture that if stuff was going wrong with your body... It was your fault. You're getting what you deserve. No one wanted to look at withered hand, man. They didn't even know his name. Jesus saw him. Did you notice that? A man was there with a withered hand. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him. The day had finally come when they were willing to look at withered hand guy but it wasn't because they wanted to look at withered hand, guy. It's because they wanted to accuse Jesus. So Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, hey, come here. Get over here. He said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? At this point, Everybody makes the right decision to be like, I'm not saying nothing. Because they know that something weird is about to happen. Right? Nobody has ever looked. No one. No rabbi has ever looked at withered hand guy. No one has ever addressed this at all. Right? Withered hand guy was getting what he deserved or at least what his parents deserved. That's the way things work. They kept silent so he looks around and i love this next word with anger i love that i love it because it's real can you imagine how angry you would be to look at the face and the cowardice of these people whose job it was to try to guide people to the truth And they didn't know how to respond because they were so wrapped up in their understanding of all these Sabbath regulations instead of seeing withered hand guy. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. So he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out what? Notice what they don't do. They're not like, did you see that? Like that guy's been that way. He's been that way for like a long time, right? I don't know. I never really look at him. I haven't noticed him. But Like no, I for sure, I've seen that guy here for like years and he's been like that for a really long period of time. They don't, they don't do that. What do they do? They begin taking counsel with the Herodians against him, how they might destroy him. We, we have got, we have got to stop this guy. Everything is coming undone. Everything that we would expect a rabbi to do, he doesn't do it. He does the opposite and it's ticking us off. We've got to change this. Jesus saw the rules differently than those people did. When you come to Jesus, who do you think you're dealing with? Growing up in the church, there'd almost always be somewhere in the church, a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall. Seeing this picture? Light, flowing brown hair about shoulder length. Blue-eyed European Jesus. Somehow Jesus moved to, I don't know, France, sitting there with just like this smug smile on his face, wearing a bed sheet. And you, you look at him as a man and you're like, I could take that guy. Right? I mean, he, did, he, doesn't, look, he doesn't look risky. He looks soft. He looks... He, he, he looks like he has been doing like a lot of yoga and like drinking chai tea. Like he looks like the type of person that you would trust to babysit your kids. Like that's, that's what was in that picture. Do you get any version of Jesus from the text that I just read to you that looks like that picture? No! If you think Jesus was some soft-spoken, safe space whose only mission was to fix your problems and make you feel good about yourself, you don't know Jesus. You don't know him. Jesus wasn't safe. He didn't do what was expected. His words were inflammatory. They caused visceral reactions. People wanted to murder him when he spoke. And yet he never hesitated to speak the truth, even when he knew it would get him killed. And instead of surrounding himself, as most rabbis could and would, with the beautiful people, the powerful people, the people off of whom I could probably make some money, the people that had everything in their life nightlessly put together, he chose followers from the outcasts the commoners, the socially unviable people. People that if you saw me hanging out with them two days from now, you'd be like, dude, like, is that a good idea? That's who he hung out with. And you know what he did? He didn't just hang out with them. As the rabbi that he, would, the rabbi that he was, he would turn to them and say, follow me, you can be just like me. That's not safe. That sounds messy. That sounds yucky in some cases and weird and not expected. He didn't teach these people in expected ways. When I look at stories like we've read this morning, I'm forced to ask myself, am I more like my rabbi or more like everyone else? You see, Jesus' invitation to me to all of you, to y'all. Remember, we got to sanctify the y'all. Jesus' invitation to us all is to follow him, to seek him, to study him, to learn from him, to be like him, to talk about him, and to represent him to a world that doesn't even know that they need him yet, but it's literally the only thing that they need. And he extends that offer to you. I spend so much time forgetting that Jesus' main message was that time was short. That the kingdom of God is at hand. And that there are so many ways that I can waste my time and be distracted seeing things the way that the world would see them instead of pursuing what my rabbi would have me pursue. So, as the musicians come up, I'm going to finish this way. I'm not going to pray at the end. They tell you in preacher school that's what you're supposed to do. That's why we almost always do it. But I'm not going to do that. Part of that reason is because I'm not a super big fan of like using prayer as a transition. But the other big thing is that I want you, like I said at the outset, I want you to try to see Jesus and be amazed. So I'm going to finish this this morning by pretending to be the voice of Jesus to you today. Now, I assume all risk and responsibility associated for saying I speak for God. Typically, if somebody says that, you should be ready to like tackle that dude, drag him out and beat him up, right? Like that's a dangerous thing. You ought to be on high alert. But I've spent so much time and energy trying to understand this man that I think that if he was standing before you now, I know what he would say to you. And so as I speak the next few words, try to do this for me. Don't hear me. Hear him. Drop it. Drop your need to be perfect. Drop your need to be with the in crowd. Drop your need to be religiously squared away. Drop your need to care more for the rules than for the heart. Drop it all and follow me. Join me. Be like me. Just Follow me.
0: Friends, just take a moment. Let that kind of resonate in your hearts.